welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you connect your Catholic faith with politics and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, our Outreach and Policy Coordinator. Happy to be back for another great episode, Jason. It's always fun, Rachel. First of all, a big thank you to Relevant Radio, 1330 AM, for use of their recording studio, and of course, our sponsor for this podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're talking about differences in between Catholic social doctrine, Catholic social teaching, how to make sense of what is binding on us as a matter of conscience and as a matter of faith, what is a prudential judgment, how do we navigate the distinction between uh, this big corpus of teaching known as Catholic social teaching and how we apply it as a matter of principle in our own lives. We'll speak to Father Peter Ryan, who formerly served as the Executive Director of the Secretariat for Doctrine and Canonical Affairs at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we delve into Pope John Paul II's encyclical Fides et Ratio, or Faith and Reason, which just marked its 20th anniversary earlier this month. Rachel, tell our listeners a little bit about what they can expect in the Bridge Builder segment. Yeah, so as always, we're going to end our podcast with a practical piece, a practical step you can take as a faithful citizen out there in the pews. And so today we're going to talk about a practical step on actually how do we connect with our legislators and how do we begin that relationship? So we talked before about um, about finding out who our legislators are. So we're going to take that a little further into a relationship dimension. And we're also going to talk about some resources that we have for the election coming up in November. Finally, we finish out this podcast with a bit of sacred music, fortunately and for your sake, not performed by Rachel and me, but by the incredible voices from choirs around Minnesota. Yeah, so let's just jump right into our discussion today. So joining us to discuss these differences in Catholic social doctrine that Jason talked about um, is Father Peter Ryan. So a little bit about Father Ryan. He's a priest of the Maryland province of the Society of Jesus. Father Ryan was ordained in 1987. He currently um, serves as a professor of theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. Before that, he served the, as the executive director of the Secretariat of Doctrine and Canonical Canonical Affairs at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Prior to that, he served as professor of moral theology and director of spiritual formation at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, professor of moral theology at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and assistant professor of theology at Loyola College in Maryland. Father Ryan is a member of the executive boards of the Fellowship of Catholic Scholars and the Courage Apostolate, was senior fellow of the Westchester Institute for Ethics and the Human Person, and is a past president of the Jesuit Philosophical Society. He is currently working on a book on tentatively titled The Blessed, the Damned, and Personal Vocation, a Christological Eschatology. So summed up, we have a man of much, much experience and wisdom joining us here on the phone. Father Peter, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you and to address your listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. So diving right in here, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? We talked about how you formerly served um, on uh, as the Secretary of Doctrine. And so can you talk a little bit about that and maybe also about your work as a professor? Um, sure. What does really that role entail? What did that role entail when you worked with the bishops? Well, the Bishops' Conference has a variety of committees, like maybe 16 or so, uh, a committee on clergy, consecrated life and vocations, a committee on divine worship, on ecumenical and religious affairs, and so forth. 
And there's a committee on doctrine. These committees have secretariats that serve them. So I was the executive director of the Secretariat of Doctrine. And we dealt with various issues, which the committee, maybe even eventually the whole body of bishops, need to address. For example, questions might arise about whether it's morally acceptable to cooperate with the government in certain ways. And making a judgment about that often requires ethical and theological analysis. And questions arise about the teaching of the church that the Committee on Doctrine needs to, to deal with. So the Secretary of Doctrine supports that committee and offers advice about various issues. The Secretary of Doctrine also has a subcommittee on scripture translation. They're translating the New American Bible again. <laughs> I'm doing a new translation of the Bible, a new version. Uh, and then the subcommittee on health care issues, which deals with contemporary kind of cutting-edge issues in health care that arise. So those are some of the things that, that we worked on there at the Bishop's Conference and the Secretary of Doctrine. Father Ryan, you seem very well positioned to help us uh, work through some challenges that uh, we hope to discuss today. Uh, one of the things that um, we encounter in our work as advocates for the church in the public square is that there's a lot of confusion among the lay faithful when we talk about Catholic social doctrine. If, it, if the church or bishops are saying something that people like is a political matter, then of course it's you know, an, uh, an, an inexorable command of the faith that must be adhered to with uh, submission of mind and will. On the other side, if we don't like it, oh, that's merely a prudential judgment. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what what is it that, what is Catholic social doctrine, or how does it differ from Catholic social teaching? Or help us unpack these terms and help us make, be, make some, start to make some distinctions about what is binding as a matter of faith, and uh, what are the relevant principles, and then what things really are uh, matters of prudence. Okay, well, I'll do my best here. Obviously, Jesus teaches us that we're supposed to love our neighbor, to love them as he loves us. That's a tall order. Uh, it's actually our most basic responsibility toward our neighbor, but what it concretely requires is not always obvious. And so the Church's social teaching clarifies our responsibilities to our neighbors. Now, loving our neighbor means obviously treating them justly and uh, even treating them mercifully, and the Catholic social doctrine clarifies that. It is a part of the teaching of the Church. It's part of the Church's tradition, and the Church's teaching binds the conscience. Maybe the best way to explain is to talk about the Church's teaching in general. Now, the bishops, as the apostles' successors, are in communion with one another and the Pope, and they are the authorized spokesmen for Jesus. Their prophetic role is called the magisterium. Well, the magisterium has the authority from Jesus to judge what belongs to Revelation. Now, there are two kinds of Catholic teaching. First, there's what has been defined or taught definitively, but there's also what has not been universally or definitively taught. Only if something has been taught definitively do we say that the teaching cannot change. And we can tell whether a teaching has been taught definitively by um, considering the criteria for whether it's an infallible teaching. Um, it becomes a little bit technical, but I can say that an infallible judgment of the, moral, of the magisterium can be expressed by formally defining a doctrine, 
like uh, when the Pope, after wide consultation, defined the truth that Mary was assumed into heaven, and the wording of the statement made it clear that this was an infallible, that is, definitive teaching, that would be an extraordinary exercise of the magisterium, an infallible statement made by the extraordinary exercise of the magisterium. But the Second Vatican Council teaches that bishops can exercise their magisterium infallibly, even in their ordinary work of teaching. And it sets out criteria that must be met in order to uh, judge that this has in fact taken place. If they are in communion with one another and with the Pope, and if they're teaching authoritatively on a matter of faith and morals, and if there's a virtual unanimity among the bishops, and if they're proposing it as a judgment that the faithful are required to hold definitively. So there has to be a clear indication that all of those criteria are, are being met. Well, the Church's moral teaching, it's obviously striving to protect the good of human beings, striving to help us love one another, but to do that properly, it has to exclude certain kinds of acts as always wrong, wrong without any exception. And the Church's teaching has done that in various areas well, notably in the areas of sexual morality and the life issues. Uh, an obvious example is adultery, and in fact, all sexual activity outside of marriage, and uh, uh, contraception, but also the intentional killing of the innocent, which is obviously of profound importance. There was a constant consensus about these matters until shortly before Vatican II, consensus that such acts can never be justified. But not all teaching, as I was saying earlier, is definitive. Not all of it is proposed infallibly. Faithful Catholics should give what is called religious assent to the other teachings as well, because even though it's technically possible that a teaching might be erroneous if it only requires religious assent, if it's not proposed infallibly, it also might well belong to revealed truth, and perhaps someday it will be defined infallibly. So religious assent basically means I accept this teaching because the authentic teachers of the faith have proposed it, and there's good reason to trust them even when they don't propose it infallibly. So with that as a kind of background, I think we can begin to understand the social teaching of the Church. As I explained, we're morally obliged, <laughs> and the Church teaches that we must, as Jesus does himself, love our neighbors as he loves us. That's really the foundation of the Church's social teaching, but the question remains as to what that requires concretely. Well, we know it's pretty obvious we're not loving our neighbor, neighbor if we're intentionally killing our neighbor or even intentionally harming them in any way. In fact, if we're doing anything intrinsically wrong against our neighbor in our interactions with our neighbor, we're not loving our neighbor. But issues of social justice are not often about acts that are intrinsically wrong. They tend, uh, I mean, they're about the concrete requirements of love and justice and mercy, and it's often not easy to figure out exactly what love, justice, and mercy require concretely. The issues are often very 
complex. Uh, I could talk about immigration, if you like, as an example. Well, I was, Father Ryan, I was going to jump in right in with immigration. Uh, for example, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church says a number of things about immigration and migration issues generally. And I think, uh, especially for our listeners, that would be a perfect topic uh, to dive into precisely because it's such an issue of, of uh, conflict and discussion and debate among Catholics. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, so the question arises, what should the immigration policy of the United States be? It's not something that can be answered in the soundbite. I mean, we can make certain general statements. Obviously, we should try to welcome people who are in need. The Church teaches that we should, and that countries have this responsibility. This will include welcoming people fleeing persecution, and even people who can't find work in their own countries, and are looking for opportunities. But we can't conclude from this that we should have a policy of open borders. Uh, in fact, as Pope Francis responded when asked whether borders can be controlled, he said, yes, each country has a right to control its borders. Who enters and who leaves and countries that are in danger of terrorism or the like have more right to control them. So he's kind of recognizing that certain responsibilities need to be balanced in his final book, Memory and Identity, although it wasn't an official act of the magisterium, it, it was Pope John Paul, Saint John Paul II's reflection on these matters. He said, the term nation designates a community based in a given territory and distinguished by its culture. Catholic social doctrine holds that the family and the nation are both natural societies, not the product of mere convention, unquote. So he's really giving some basis for saying that countries have the right even and even the responsibility to protect their own identity, and this means they have the right to secure their borders. But it's important not to rationalize. I think that's what often happens, as you were suggesting at the beginning of the show, People can try to interpret things in ways that go along with what they happen to want. Countries, despite the fact that they are, uh, they have the right and the responsibility to secure their borders, they also have the responsibility to do what they reasonably can to welcome people in need. The, the Catechism of the Catholic Church has an interesting quote in paragraph 2241. It says, the more prosperous nations are obliged to the extent that they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin, unquote. But, you know, that, notice that, that little phrase, to the extent that they are able, what does that mean concretely? The Church's teaching right. doesn't try to settle that. It's basically saying you need to take into consideration both sides and Try to avoid rationalizing and make the best judgment you can about how you can meet both the needs of the country uh, to maintain its own identity and be secure and protected from terrorists, and at the same time that we're generously reaching out to others, not just to those who we think might be able to make some great, huge contribution to our country, but people that are genuinely in need and um, offer them what we're able to offer them. Right. So it's this balancing act. So, yes. you know, so as we're talking about that and especially this issue that we're diving into of immigration that's been so relevant even just in the past year, um, really, Father, what 
what statements from the church, um, you know, whether it's from the bishops or, bishops or from Pope Francis surrounding, you know, maybe this particular issue as we're talking about it, are conscience binding? Well, I think... Uh, what is prudent? Yeah, often enough, I think statements are made that are, that are not conscience binding, except in the most general ways that we need to be concerned about people who are in difficult circumstances in their home countries. So if, you know, the general point, I think the general point is binding, that we should be concerned about immigrants, that we should try our best to welcome those we are able to welcome. And, uh, but, you know, as far as saying, well, this particular policy is morally required. I mean, bishops generally, um, they don't necessarily, they're not, they tend not to make absolutely specific statements about this policy being required. Even if, even if the, the, most of what they say falls on the side of being concerned about the plight of immigrants, uh, they, they tend to make general statements and focus on that need but if they're making specific statements, um, I don't think we need to think that you know a specific policy statement is a bind is binding on conscience unless it can be shown that 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 the moral you know moral law requires it. So, for example, you know a moral law that justified something intrinsically wrong, we could say that is binding on conscience that the bishops speak against that because they're simply mm-hmm. articulating the requirements of the of the moral law in general. But if reasonable people, people of goodwill, can differ about what is the proper policy course, then, um, you know, that's, they right. can't be forced to adopt one position or another, but they certainly do have to be guided by the general principles of concern for the least among us. Father, you serve as a spiritual director, and uh, one of the dynamics of social media and conversation among the faithful today is that people can talk to each other. There's more room for conversation, engagement, et cetera, et cetera. But almost one one of the dangers is that everyone uh, believes themselves to be a theologian. Uh, what right. counsel would you give Catholics who you know want to engage in debates or conversations? You know the the Pope modifies the catechism, for example, on the, on the matter of the death penalty, and everyone's out there opining on it. What might you, direction might you give us from the perspective of uh, just the, the person in the pew uh, looking at these things, praying about these issues, thinking about them, and you know, just from a guidance perspective about how to conform your will and your mind and your intellect to the teachings of the Church? Well, certainly prayer is Uh, I think, essential, really praying, really kind of allowing the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts and open our hearts to be able to hear things that maybe we don't want to hear because they're at odds with uh, perhaps an ingrained way of thinking. Uh, If they're countercultural things, especially, uh, maybe hard for us to hear. But that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's number one, I think. And I, but I also think that, that, um, you know, 
our immediate response ought to be one of acceptance when some teaching is clearly being proposed. When something, but it has to be clear that it's being proposed. You know, there, there have been a lot of uh, statements about, for example, communion for the divorced and remarried. Well, I, I haven't seen any any clear teaching that is changing something in that regard. Uh, so I think in such a case, uh, one needs to stick with what, obviously, what we hear the Lord himself saying in the gospel and what the church has always taught. But when you have something very clear with what the Pope is doing in the catechism thing, it seems to me that um, that one ought to have an attitude of acceptance because this is something clearly being proposed. Now, I realize that some will say, well, doesn't this go against what the Church has taught in, in the past? And there are some, I think, legitimate questions along those lines. Um, but uh, I think the typical Catholic in the pew, not being a theologian, you know, can certainly learn about those issues and, and read about those issues. We have some very intelligent pew sitters, no question about it. But at the same time, um, I think the assumption ought to be, uh, unless you can kind of show in a really clear way that um, you've got a, another teaching that is, that is being, you know, that, that this is displacing and that that previous teaching is binding, I think the assumption ought to be that uh, we go with what is being proposed by the magisterium. And that's what it means to be a faithful Catholic, to go with what the magisterium is, in fact, presenting us. Now, questions about you know, how do these things fit together, I think one has to have a certain background in, in order to have the kind of competence to really deal with all of the issues that that would involve. Right. Just as a quick follow-up, Father, before we have to before we have to wrap up here, follow-up to Jason's question. You know, we are in this communication age, and you see, we see things coming out on the internet, and we see things coming from the Vatican website, coming from news sites, and um, there's just a lot of information <laughs> to know, whether it's on Twitter, or, um, social media, all of these things. And so, how does just the Catholic sitting in the pew, going to church on Sunday? really distinguish, even I find it hard sometimes to distinguish between what is being proposed versus just what's being reported. And so is there a good resource that you recommend, you know, just this is a good resource to know, like this is what the church is saying versus this is what, just what the media is saying could happen? Or how does the how does a Catholic make a distinction who wants to think with the mind of the church this is actually what's been proposed by the official teachers of the church versus this is floating around, this is something that we've heard. Um, you know what I mean? Sure. Well, I mean, the Vatican has its own documents, and uh, the bishops' conference have their own, its own documents. And uh, so one could, you know, go to the Vatican website or the USCCB website and try to look into such matters. But I think also, you know, going to reputable sources who are known for their fidelity to the magisterium. I think some publications are going to be likely to be much more reliable than other publications in terms of giving you a proper um, exposition of the, what's happening. And uh, 
be able to tell you about that. So, I mean, the only there are there are the official sources, which are from the bishops themselves and from the Vatican, and then there are faithful Catholic outlets that try to you know explain that as well as possible. And uh, you know, a popular newspaper that I would consider a faithful newspaper would be, for example, the National Catholic Register. There was an interesting article written by a fellow named Patrick Lee, who I actually relied on his article a little bit in explaining some things about capital punishment and about church teaching. Uh, he wrote an interesting article on this whole matter of the death penalty. It's called A Genuine and Important Development of Catholic Teaching. So that's something someone might want to look mm-hmm. at. Great. Great. Well, there's a there's a lot to unpack here. Thank you so much, Father, for this great discussion, both on church teaching and about some of these specific issues. We really appreciate you spending some time with us here today. Well, you're most welcome. It was a delight to be with you and Jason, and uh, perhaps we'll do this another time. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much. God bless you both. God bless you, Father. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And we'll be right back in a moment. One of our segments in the Bridge Builder podcast is our commentary on classic Catholic social teaching. This year of 2018 has been one of anniversaries. And so during our segments, we've tried to profile documents and church uh, teachings and cyclicals that are celebrating anniversaries this year. We've already looked at Humane Vitae, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Living the Gospel of Life from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. And today we will look at Fides et Ratio, an encyclical of John Paul II. The English title would be Faith and Reason, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary earlier this month. So uh, really it's a year of anniversaries. And in our next podcast, uh, we'll be looking at Veritatis Splendor, another encyclical of Pope John Paul II, who which is celebrating its 25th anniversary. So an important year of anniversaries in papal encyclicals. But today we wanted to look at faith and reason, the way in which faith and reason complement and supplement each other. In his opening to the encyclical, Pope John Paul II said that faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart the desire to know the truth in a word to know himself that by knowing and loving God, men and women can come to the fullness of the truth about themselves. So ironically, a faith-based institution, Rachel, is has become one of the preeminent defenders of reason. Uh, and by reason, not that you know, humans are rational creatures that everyone admits and can think, but that actually we can know the nature of things. We can know their essences and that truth is not simply relative uh, to our time, place, or historical condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think... This is just really interesting in light of, you think of academia and some places where thought is considered to be excellent. Sometimes the school of thought is that religion and faith has to stamp out reason in order to be considered true or that people of faith who believe in certain faith principles have to, you know, kind of delete the reason part of their brain. But really what John Paul II tells us is you can't have one without the other. You know, they enlighten each other and they bring each other to its fullness. Yeah, so much of the false either or propositions that we face in our culture, uh, one of them being that uh, 
reason is an enemy of faith, what we might call fideism. So if you want to be a Christian person or a person of faith, you have to be suspicious of reason, suspicious of science, things like that. Or on the other side, if you want to be a rational person, if you want to be an enlightened person, Mm -hmm. one might say, then you have to put aside faith, which is considered to be inherently irrational. Mm -hmm. But Christ is logos, right? Right. Christ is logos. He's the word. Uh, He is the ordered, he is the ordering principle of creation. In fact, as creator, the Trinitarian creation dynamic, uh, God spoke the word and it was created. So Mm -hmm. there is an order and intelligibility to creation that we can know both by faith and by reason. Right. And, um, you know, as I was reading through this and going a little bit further in what John Paul talks about in this relationship, you know, as we've seen in a post-Christian society, God and people's views kind of, you know, as Pope Benedict said, disappearing from their horizon, we've seen also people not pursuing truth and not pursuing reason as much. And JP2 addresses this, and this is one of the parts that I love where he says people are are not asking these questions anymore. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going? That have always been fundamental human questions, you know, but the separation of this relationship of faith and reason is kind of dying out this curious flame about the truth about ourselves as human beings. So the relevance of an encyclical like that, it's not merely a commentary on philosophy or something for academics, but it's the Holy Father trying to help us understand the path by which we come to know ourselves and and by knowing ourselves, also knowing God as well. Right, exactly. And in the church's role in this that, that he brings in, at a certain point he talks about that the church, as we're accompanying people on this journey, you know, as we're accompanying people to find truth, because as, as you said at the beginning, everybody has a desire in their human heart to know what's true. The church and those in the truth, the church, have a responsibility to proclaim the things that we know to be certain, to proclaim the truths that we hold. And so not just to stand on the sidelines and say, well, people will get there, you know, but to really proclaim the truths that we know are true, that we've been given by God. And that kind of unpacks the, the relationship, right, between faith and reason is that the tr- those, those fundamental truths, those, the bigger picture of reality is, is not simply that's the, something that's the right and property of philosophers. Not everyone's a philosopher, so some people say, well, I can't know deeply or know more deeply because I'm not, I'm not a philosopher. I can't, these things are above my pay grade. But no, the desire for truth is written on every human heart, and that's mm-hmm. why we have revelation, right? So the way in which reason and revelation or faith complement each other is that revelation opens the door. It gives everyone, not just a privileged few, access to the most deepest truths that guide our existence. Right. Mm-hmm. But yet philosophy, but people want to know more. They want to know they want to go beyond. They want to go more deeply. They want to unpack this great logos, this mm-hmm. great ordering of creation, which is why we have science. Right? right. And that's that's what reason helps us do. Right? right. And it's really beautiful how the plan and the providence of God has particularly unfolded in such a detailed way that Jesus, he came to reveal God the Father, right? This revelation that you're talking about, he came to reveal the glory of the Father on earth so that every human heart could know the truth and that could accept the truth about who God is. And then he uses all of creation and the gift of reason to enlighten and pair with that gift of faith, the very revelation of the glory of the Father, to bring us to our home in heaven. It's just the relationship is beautiful. You see how detailed God is um, and just the the gifts he gives us 
to be able to unpack all this is really, really striking to me. And reason, really, Pope John Paul's words, is that bridge between believers and Mm non-believers, right? That God-given reason that we have, um, even if someone has not embraced the gift of faith or has not received the gift of faith, the the way in which the world is ordered, the fact that it is intelligible, um, is a place of common ground between believers and non-believers. Here we can think of the great medieval debates and conversations uh, that went on between uh, well, not on a personal level, but people like St. Thomas Aquinas, the great uh, Islamic philosophers of Aroes and Avicenna, Moses Maimonides, um, the emerging scientists, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. during that time. So reason really can be a bridge between people of faith, at least Christians, and then people of other faiths or no faith at all. Right, right. And so he, I love how the two play back and forth, though. So you're saying, you know, reason prepares the way to faith, right? It prepares a path to faith. But then also faith, he says, stirs reason to explore paths that we might not know to go down before, you know? And so it's this back and forth like enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, the science is intelligible only in the context where we can know the nature and essences of things, right? right? Science is spurred on by that desire to know more, to desire to know everything about the way in which God has created the world. So really faith grounds science and propels it forward in many ways. One of the most dynamic and interesting things about the encyclical are the concrete ways that Pope John Paul II identifies the way in which reason supports faith and philosophy and by and con- by contrast how faith how faith supports reason and theology supports philosophy. So let me, let me, I'm going to say a little bit about the first, and then I'll let Rachel say a bit about the second. He says, reason prepares the way of faith. St. Justin and the apologists use philosophy as a preamble of the faith. The second way is that reason can show that there is a God and can demonstrate his primary attributes, such as his power and divinity. I think this one's really important today, that um, one need not simply uh, encounter God through revelation, but God can be known in his attributes philosophically. Likewise, faith without reason withers into myth or superstition. And here we see this concrete impact impact of uh, fanaticism, uh, terror, religiously motivated terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. And something that Pope Benedict really built upon in his Regensburg address is the idea that faith um, in many ways uh, is has be- becomes irrational or can devolve into myth or superstition or violence without um, in, in some way being purified by reason. So reason plays an important role there. And then finally, philosophy provides a language for theology. One can think, of course, of the language of the Trinity being identified as three persons, um, but one substance there. These are philosophical terms imported into the theological framework to help us understand the truths of revelation. So mm-hmm. those are important ways in which reason supports faith and philosophy supports theology. Yeah, so moving on to how he talks about theology, well, faith supports reason and how theology supports philosophy, we'll dive into two things here. He says, human reason is inherently weak and inclined to error. Deprived of revelation, reason can go off course and miss its destination. Faith warns reason against the paths that will lead it astray. It shines light on the true paths. And so I think we we see this, you know, because we're kind of in an era where information is king. You know, we have all these new scientific discoveries or even artificial intelligence, these different things. And um, we can kind of come to see our re- um, our human reason can dominate and can gain power and can gain respect and all these things. And we know best. And so really what faith 
does is it enlightens that and makes sure that we stay on a path that's both not prideful but also not erroneous, you know, because only God knows what's true and what's right. And so I think that's really interesting. And then also keeping people, I think, goes along with that in pursuit of truth for the right reasons. Because I think sometimes nowadays, too, we see people on pursuit of truth and on a question asking you know, journey for the sake of asking questions and for the sake of being skeptics, you know, and so I think faith can really keep us on that path. And then one more thing that he says that I think is interesting, he says, faith stirs reason to explore paths that it would not otherwise have suspected it could take. And we mentioned this before, it says it proposes truths that might never have been discovered by unaided reason. For example, the notions of free will and a personal God who is the creator of the world have been crucial for the development of a philosophy of being. The Christian proclamation of human dignity, equality, and freedom is reflected in modern philosophical thought. You know, so this essential idea of to why we have this endowed dignity as human beings that really carves out so many things in society, so many things in the church, so many philosophical ideas has to be aided by faith, you know, because our human dignity is elevated when we understand really what God has done for us and who we are in a supernatural way, which can only be understood by faith. And especially as we think about how to respect and engage with the rest of creation, I always call this the Jurassic Park analogy. (laughs) Those movies have been around forever, but it's always the same story, right? And it goes back to that original line in the first movie where Jeff Goldblum, you know, asked the question, just because you can do something, that doesn't necessarily mean you Mm -hmm. should, right? Right. And so it's a question that's perennial for all of us is that science impels us to explore and discover and do great things, but without ethics, uh, without the light of faith and Mm -hmm. how we should treat creation, respect creation and its limits. Sometimes we go down rabbit holes and uh, do things that are not prudent. And that's a question that's definitely relevant for bioethics today. Right. So that's a just a brief overview of this important encyclical Fides et Ratio doctrine and encyclicals and teaching far from being Um, esoteric and the stuff of merely theologians and academics have a direct import and an impact on our lives and our way of being today and uh, always deserve to be continually unpacked and explored the riches of this great encyclical Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul, 1998. So in every podcast, we try not to uh, leave the discussion at the level of theory, but also bring it into practice. How do we bring our faith into the public arena and to lead us in that discussion? Rachel Herbeck always uh, provides us with a helpful tip, something uh, today that uh, really builds on what we talked about in a prior podcast about engaging with and relating to legislators. Yeah, so we've heard a lot in this podcast, a lot to unpack, a lot to pray on, but I want to give a practical thing, as Jason said, that builds on something that we talked about in our first podcast was to find out who your legislators are. You know, we talked about getting involved by finding out who they are, and this is just a next practical step of that. And so I would encourage everyone listening to not only find out who they are and what their contact information is, but use that contact information to go and introduce yourselves to your legislators. And this doesn't have to be a long script. It can be extremely straightforward. They want to know who you are. They want to know 
who they're representing in their district. So you can, as simple as, call their office number and introduce yourself, say, I'm so-and-so, this is where I live, I'm a Catholic, this is my parish, this is what I do for work, and maybe you have a specific issue that you're concerned about off the top of your head and express that to them. Just very simple and relational, the first step in building um, an important relationship with your legislator. That's right, and they expect you to ask things of them, Mm -hmm. right? They expect you to come to them with an issue, and that's why they serve. That's why they serve, because they want to represent their constituents. They want to make a positive impact in their communities and across our state. One key point, though, as you build relationships with your legislators, so first got to get to know them, but to really have a relationship, you want to make appeals and not demands. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a big difference there. It's, It's one thing to... Uh, come to your legislator and talk about important issues. It's nothing to constantly be demanding things. You need to do this or else. And there's really too much of that going on in politics today, and it poisons the whole process. We're always demanding things of them uh, as mere vessels and not as persons uh, with with challenges, limitations, um, both personally and professionally as mm-hmm. legislators. So it's important that we serve and build that relationship as a resource. You are a resource to legislators and not simply uh, someone who uh, is there for you to make demands and try to impose your will upon. We talk about a lot in politics, people use the term power and building power. But politics, is the, as, as the church says, it's one of the highest forms of charity because it's an act of service. And we need to be resources and not just constantly making demands of people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we want to get things done, but ultimately we're Catholic. And so we want to really treat this as a form of charity. Right. And so that that means being a resource and being friends with your legislator, building these bridges like the podcast says. They are good people almost uh, to the person at down at the Capitol. That's our experience. And they want to do good. And it's what you say to them is going to uh, be embraced uh, more readily if it's done with charity and with knowledge and respect and not simply another demand and not simply another person mm-hmm. asking something of them. So p- Christians, when we do politics, it's not just what we say. Uh, that's certainly important. Principles consistent with justice and charity, but also how we engage the public arena. So building a relationship is one way in which we uh, build civic friendship where we make appeals and not just demands. Absolutely. And just another reminder as we wrap up this practical segment, um, we've mentioned it in our other podcasts before, but we are in an election season. And so the Minnesota Catholic Conference, we have some important election resources to help guide you, to help inform your prudential judgments. And so you can find those at mncatholic.org forward slash election. And so that's another place to find some resources. And so feel free to log on to our website and take a look at those. Catch the next episode of our podcast on SoundCloud. Join us on Facebook at MN Catholic, on Twitter at MN Catholic Conf, that's C-O-N-F at the end, and check out our YouTube channel. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM Twin Cities and our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council, the Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church and serving our communities. Thank you for listening today, and make sure you share this podcast with all of your friends and family. Finally, what better way to end our podcast of great conversation than with great sacred music? Here is the Gregorian Chant Scola of St. John's Abbey and University performing Tu Puer, You, O Child, a Gregorian chant uh, that recalls the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 76, the verse which St. John the Baptist uh, speaks of St. John the Baptist preparing the way for Christ. 
The church celebrates John the Baptist's martyrdom coming up on Wednesday, August 29th. Thanks again for listening. God bless you.